FASWA is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit saswhat.com. I, let me say. Let me ask you: Has anybody ever told you you look like Zachary Quinto? Uh, is that someone? I think you did. I think you've said it before. So there you go. There's somebody. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay. No, you do. Do you look like that guy from the video game? Which which what game is that? The uh... Fallout. Didn't you say yeah, Fallout? Yeah. Not Fallout. Not Fallout. The guy with the Half Life. Half Life. Half Life. You're like Half-Life. the dude from yeah. Half Life. When you got your glasses on, <laughs> just get you a a machete or whatever it is he uses in that thing, and you'll go to town. <laughs> Okay, so we're sitting here. You guys are talking about. Okay, first of all, uh, I'm I'm talking tonight. This was a spontaneous Sasswat episode. For some reason, uh, the way Mark and I operate is we record multiple episodes in a setting, and then I have episodes to kind of fall back on should we run into a week where I am out of ammo. And uh, this week I'm out of ammo, and I realized I'm also out of episodes. So I called up uh, the reserves. Uh, Brian Brown, Daryl Collier of the uh, NAWAC, who've been on the show. I think I know Daryl's been on at least once, possibly twice. Brian, you've been on a few times, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, times. yeah. And we wanted to talk. I wanted to have you guys on at some point to talk about the Watchtower Project monograph, um, but we have not got to that yet. So hopefully, at some point, we'll get around to that. But I wanted to have you guys on because it is the beginning of summer, and of course, uh, every year, the NAWAC, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, um, goes into the area known as Area X in the uh, Wachita Mountains, and you stake it out. You're in there from basically, what, 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 what month do we typically go in? Can we even say that? It varies. Okay. It's, it's been different every year. Okay. You know, and we do that for a reason. I mean, hey, we've been been as a, early as April, uh, May. This year we start June. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it just varies, you know. It's it's a wholly unique way of looking for uh, what what you refer to as wood apes, what a lot of people refer to as Bigfoot, commonly referred to as Bigfoot. Um, mm-hmm. It to to actually go in and stake out one single place where there has been repeated activity. It's not something a lot of groups would have the patience to do, and typically what most people want to do. And I think part of it has to do with kind of the fun of getting out there and doing their own version of ghost hunting is to you know you you run out to where there's been a sighting, you investigate that sighting, and you might go out in the woods and do some tree knocking or whatever. But this this group actually spends uh, countless man hours in the woods actively researching in an area that has had activity and I think it's a uh, fantastic idea and an amazing way to go about it and you guys have had obviously uh, a lot of results in this area and I'm, I'm doing all this I, I know a lot of our listeners are going to be aware of you guys but but we also have a lot of new listeners a lot of people who are new to this subject in general so we want to kind of introduce them to the subject of uh, not the subject, but introduce them to the organization of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. So, you know, I think that the 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 approach that we take the the going out there and, and sort of staking out the area, and I'll let I'll let Daryl speak to that because that was really 
you know, um, uh, a, a strategy that was developed with, with, with his guidance. But I think that the, the, the ability to do that speaks to the commitment of the people in the organization. Exactly. Um, I mean, we have so many members now and um, they are willing to put themselves out there on their, uh, on their own dime. I mean, uh, everyone takes personal time out and does this. And so we're able to field um, these, these groups of people uh, four to six at a time on average uh, over months. Um, it, it's, it's really, it, you know, as you say, it's not something I've heard of before. I don't know that anyone else could do it just because of the manpower we have focused in this area. It isn't like, I'm sure the BFRO or some other groups have, have as many or more members, but they're spread out, they're diffuse. Our members are able to come and, and sort of bear down on this area. Plus, of course, we're very fortunate to be in an area where we know there to be activity. And, and we have access to it. And um, those are just sort of two, two uh, not well, perhaps unique um, combinations of things that the NEWAC uh, has to their advantage. Um, Daryl, do you want to speak a little bit about the organization and how you got involved in the first place? And um, oh, just a little bit, I mean, we want to make this brief because obviously a lot of people have heard some of this stuff, but um, talk a little bit about the early days of the, of the organization and, and how it's evolved. Well, uh, yeah, I actually got involved in 2003. Oh, man, it seems so long ago now, but uh, that's when I got involved. Uh, I contacted Allison Higgins and, uh, you know, began a long-time friendship. And uh, we both were members of the, I became a member of the BFRO with Alton. And then we both joined a regional organization called the Texas Bigfoot Research Center, which that that was the genesis for this organization, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. And uh, 2007, the Texas Bigfoot Research Center became a, a nonprofit organization. We changed the name to Conservancy, and it's uh, the requirements for membership have gotten progressively more stringent through the years. Um, our um, Ambitions as an organization have gotten higher. We've become much more um, dedicated and serious to actually solving the mystery, um, getting well beyond any semblance of a social club, which, in my opinion, uh, the organization in its early years, that's really what it was. It was, a, it was an organization dedicated to having monthly meetings and everybody going out to a restaurant and then you'd go out somewhere in the woods and kind of run around and say, Oh, this is cool. We're looking for Bigfoot. And, uh, you know, and I just said to myself, this is not, this is not how you do it. If you want to go find a primate that's hiding in the deep woods somewhere, you don't just, you know, go out to the local lake at the woods and just sort of, you know, run around the woods on an afternoon and then say, you've been, you've been, uh, you know, conducting Bigfoot research. And, um, and so, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if you really, truly want to find something like this, you're going to have to you're going to have to invest a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of money, and most people aren't willing to do that. They just don't. They don't want to. You know, who, who wants to? Who considers it fun to go hang out in 95 degree weather with the humidity of 95 degrees, where all the animals want to kill you, or eat you, or sting you, or bite you, and and then you you know, and then also you've got the possibility of a seven foot tall undiscovered primate that could be aggressive, we don't really know, um, you know, uh, that's out there as well. I mean, that's it's kind of one of those things, you know, uh, it's just, I mean, who wants to really, truly do that? I, I think it's uh, the number of people who really want to do that, I think it's few and far between. 
okay, so that brings up a good point because I'm sitting here before we started recording and I'm listening to you guys talk about when you're going into X this year, and there is a, um, especially from Daryl, I can always sense this this overriding excitement, like you you almost cannot wait to get back in there. So, yeah, I'm, <laughs> right, but like. Over time, because this has been going on for years now, does yeah. does, does that ever wane? And if it does, what brings you back? Like, what do you? Do, is there a point where you're like, you know what? I'm just not feeling it. Or are you more like the? Well, just let's, oh. let's just let's put this in perspective. We're going into the woods to to uh, document an animal that is not supposed to exist, that is strong enough and large enough to crush the cabin in which you uh, house you your team and and which in which you all stay, and it's uh, it's the stuff of legends. Um, it's smarter than anything in North America. It's stronger, faster than anything in North America, um, and the rest of the world thinks it's a freaking joke, and you have seen it with your own eyes. You've smelled it. You've seen the tracks more times than you can count. How can anyone not be? I mean, it's the coolest thing on the planet to me. How can anybody not be excited about that? I mean... I don't care how many times you've seen them. I don't care how many times you smell them. I mean, it's just, I just can't wait to get back out there and just, you know, match, you know, match wits with these things because they're incredibly intelligent. We don't, you know, we live in the, we live in the future, right? We live in the 21st century and the attitude of most people is that everything good has been discovered. All, all yeah. everything is known. And, and, you know, just to sort of echo what, what Daryl was saying, how many, how many of us get to go and do something that is that is really an adventure that is really absolutely on the edge of some kind of discovery and, and so you know yeah you know i have to drive i drive like 14 hours to get there it i'm never excited to leave right cuz it's it's it, it's a there's a lot of work i got to load up my truck i got to drive for a day it's 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 an 8 hour drive for me brian it's yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's no it's, fun getting there, but yeah, you have. And then when you're there, as Daryl says, it's hot, freaking ticks everywhere. You know, the it's uncomfortable. There's, there's, there, there are many sort of downsides to being there, but the upside is you are participating in this grand adventure that that could actually answer one of the greatest questions of How our time. How not get I mean, excited it, about that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's almost impossible. To, I mean, to, and to have, I mean, again, I, I don't want to get, like, weird about this, but, like, to be so fortunate to have access to this area, to be to know that something is there, and to have this organization behind you of dozens of people who are willing to, <laughs> to sacrifice as much, if not more, than you are to to make this possible, It isn't. it isn't a question of, how do you get yourself to do it? It's like how how can you not be there all the time? All the time, yes. Yeah. It's it's the same sort of feeling I have when 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 a when a person approaches me and, and talks to me about it for the first time, and they're you know they have maybe an open mind about it, but they just can't quite buy into it. And I I have this grin on my face the whole time I'm talking to them, and it's not because I'm smug; it's just because because I know they exist, yeah. you know, and they don't, and they. And some of these people proceed as if they do know why well, it can't exist, it doesn't exist, and it's like, oh my gosh, if you just if you only knew, you know, I mean, yeah, it's just incredible. It's incredible. How can you not be excited about it? You know, right, right. 
And you talked a little bit about the early days of the organization. This opens up a, um, a, a good opportunity to bring up one of the questions that was uh, posted earlier by Bob Strain. Um, Bob. He asked, yeah, you guys have probably heard of him. Uh, Bob Strain? I don't know that guy. Yeah, I don't yeah. Bob Actually, Strain. humorously enough, I'm curious to find out uh, if he got his uh, Minerva Monster copy yet uh, because I addressed it to Bobo. Strain. Uh, Perfect. Uh, he wanted to. Uh, he said you could talk about other aspects of the organization, like the highway adoption. And I know when I first got uh, into the group or was trying to get into the group, that the highway adoption thing was something I read about and thought that was kind of a cool aspect. Can you talk a little bit about that, either of you, and how that plays into the overall goal? Well, uh, in Texas, we have the Adopt a Highway program. Um, I think Texas uh, began that program way back in the 80s. It's just where a group, a, a group of people, or an organization, uh, you know, uh, makes a pledge to adopt a, a certain stretch of highway—a mile, two miles, three miles—and then they sort of become the the, the, uh, the I guess the, the, the custodian of that that part of the highway. They clean it up, they keep it clean, make sure the litter is picked up. And, uh, and then you get a sign. You, the organization gets a sign put up there, and it says, this stretch of Texas Highway uh, adopted by North American Wood Ape Conservancy, which means that North American Wood Ape Conservancy is the custodian of that stretch of highway, and they're responsible for cleaning it. So uh, John Dollins, who lives down in the Houston area, uh, you know, approached the, the board of directors about the possibility of uh, adopting a stretch of highway uh, in the Sam Houston National Forest. Where there's been a, uh, a a pretty rich history of of reported sightings of wood apes. In fact, uh, it's the the, the adopt a highway is on Highway 1375, which runs across Lake Conroe, and it's there's been a number of sightings through there. So we said, yeah, it's a great idea. So John John took the leadership on that and uh, got got it uh, got the highway uh, dedicated to us, and and so the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Uh, periodically goes down there. A, a group of us go down there, and uh, you know, we just we, we clean the highway. We pick up the trash, pick up the debris, and, and make sure that stretch of highway looks looks good. That's and that's how it works. And that and that that's part of our you know our, our greater mission. Which Brian, I'll let you speak to that. Well, I I mean I I, I think that there's um, you'll need to refresh my memory what part of the mission that 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 accomplishes. But I, I would I, say I, that, I guess. I guess oh, education, education right. Or, I mean, yeah, the, you know. yeah. What I like about it, just from the standpoint of being the guy who um, thinks about how the group is presented, um, yeah. it, it's, it, it, it's, it's a great, yeah, it's a great sort of promotional piece for the group, but also it, it goes to the point of, of the, the esprit de corps that, that exists mm -hmm. in the group. And, and um, I mean, I, I think it's great. I wish that, uh, you know, I'm a little too far away to drive down there for the weekend and help them pick up trash, but I would if I could. Um, so I, I just think it, it, it speaks to the, to the, to the cohesion of the group and, and our willingness to just do stuff other than, um, the stuff that gets all the press and everyone talk about press that everyone well, talks and, about and, in and to actually work, I mean, to, to get out there and actually do yeah. that, pick yeah. up trash is yeah, not I mean, something. Daryl's <laughs> comment earlier about the, the very social aspect of the group. And, and I think that, that there is a social kernel there. There's still a lot of fellowship that goes on. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's, a little, it's, it's just a little differently focused at this point. You know, usually when we get together now, we're talking about 
what we're going to be doing in the future, what we have done in the past. We talk about, uh, or we're doing something like this, where we're cleaning up the highway. There's a little more focus to, to what we do. And that isn't taking anything away from, from people who just want to get together and socialize. I mean, that's what people do. But I, I think that the, the uh, purpose of it now is a little more focused on things like that. And, um, and I appreciate that. I like that part of the group. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't help but have um, a special bond. And that's, that's one of the reasons military and you know, firefighters and police officers, they have that sort of bond. When you go through something that's highly stressful together, and you share that commonality with with an, another individual or with another with a group of individuals. It does create a very very tight bond, and we have that bond because of by virtue of what's gone on in Area X, because we've shared those experiences together, and it makes us very tight. And um, so yeah, there is definitely my my best friends are in this organization. I didn't come into the organization for that. I didn't seek that out. It's just happened. It's been a byproduct of it. Yeah. I mean, right. you mentioned Bob Strain. Bob Strain is, I mean, I've known Bob Strain a long time. I mean, I, I love that guy like a brother, and it's partly because of what we've done together in this group. All right. Uh, Area X, we talked a little bit about it. I gave a brief, super brief overview. Um, I want you guys to talk a little bit about X for people who've never heard of Area X. Explain where it is, um, how, you know, not necessarily how we ended up there, but what kind of activity we've had there, kind of the results of the amount of time that you've spent in there, some of the things you guys have seen and heard and uh, cataloged. Well, I mean that covers that actually covers a lot of a lot of time because it's not we haven't just been in there the last couple of years. We've been going in there since the turn of the century, uh, and uh, so it, it it started. It's 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 actually gone to a crescendo. I mean, it started at a very low level, and through the years, it's just incrementally built up and built up and continued to build up. And and then we have these these last four years where we've done these these uh, these field studies um, and which has become called the, the Washita project. Um, it's, you know, it's just culminated in what we now almost take for granted in there. Uh, you know, we started out incrementally. We started out putting cameras out and that's pretty much all we did. We did it twice a year. We'd, we'd put a bunch of camera traps in the area. We would, we would leave the area and then we'd go back six months later to check the cameras. Did that for five years. Um, we initially went in there because we were, we were called in there by the people that own the land who had had these experiences, these things, throwing rocks at their cabin and, and pushing over trees and that sort of thing. So Alton Higgins was was uh, called in there and began an investigation. And, you know, I, I hooked up with Alton, and and then uh, we started the camera trap project. That um, went for, went on for five years. Tens of thousands of dollars spent, uh, out, countless hours spent in there, uh, you know, taking care of those cameras. And then... You know, uh, Brian joined the organization. We can have strategic discussions about how we can, you know, how we can up the intensity of what we're doing there. Um, and it, you know, the discussion evolved into, uh, you know, just becoming more of a presence and, and going from this passive, this sort of passive uh, presence, which was the Camera Trap Project, into a more uh, aggressive or, or active sort of presence, which is what we now have. Uh, you know, which involves putting actual boots on the ground for. You know, four months, three, three to four months every year. You know? The type, the type of activity that that we've experienced there has has escalated, obviously in quantity yes. since we've been spending more time there. But mm -hmm. um, even going way back, uh, traditionally, uh, wood knock sounds, uh, rock throws, 
um, vocalizations, uh, memory, cabin slaps, cabin slapping. Uh -huh. Um, and, and it wasn't until the, the, the first year of our extended operation that we had a sighting there. So we had been going in yeah. for like seven or eight years at that point before any of our members had, had a sighting. And so, and, and the reality is at that point, there would have been members in our group, you know, and I've made this point either on this show or in others before, but, but wood knocking, we were suspicious of wood knocking. We weren't sure that, that apes did that. Uh, rock throwing, we had not had sufficient evidence that, that that was something that apes did. Basically, all the way down the list of things that we've had um, multiple experiences with now, including whether or not the apes were present, were things that we walked in um, skeptical of. And then uh, through the fullness of time and, and the, the, the ability of, of our experiences, you know, what, that, what that granted us, uh, we've come to accept many of these things as, as true. So it, it's we've had trees pushed down. Uh, we've had, I mean, really large rocks thrown. Well, yeah, um, I, I, not I, just rock, not just like stones, but like basketball. Stones. Yeah, basketball, yeah. bowling ball, bigger than basketball, rocks. bowling ball. Yeah, absolutely. Now that isn't that isn't frequently what happens, but it has happened. So I mean, it, it's it, the, the panoply of, of of experience at this point. Um, much of it, sort of traditional bigfoot type activity but but the intensity and the the frequency of it is what's really striking in area x and you yeah that's what i was going to say so you you're talking about rock throwing but i mean you have the what you guys referred to as the rain of rocks i mean there's there's yeah. sounds i've heard that you guys have recorded that that almost are unbelievable to me i mean like it's insane 100 percent, 100 percent agree in some of these things had i not been there and experienced them i i i they would have would left be able to wrap older. your mind around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard the rain of rocks. I know the guys who were there when that happened. Um, I was there. Daryl was there. It, it is completely weird when you listen to it, and I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how it was created. I don't know how they did it. I, I, it just it. But it, we have a recording of it, audio recording. It actually happened. There were four or five of our guys there when it happened. Three of us. It, there were three of us. Three of us there. It's. It's unusual, to say the least. And, and this is, you know, a really critical point. I think there are some people in this field who would have um, experiences like ours. I, I don't think that, I don't know how many people have had the quantity of experience that we've had as a group, but there are definitely people in, in, the, in the field who have had experiences like ours. And they walk out um, of the forest with, with, I think, an attitude very often of, um, they're confrontational about it. Like, like, this has happened, this is true, and you need to believe me. And all that sort of thing. I, I think what's what's a, a, a critical point about our group is we don't expect anyone to believe what we're saying just because we're saying it. The, the, we don't believe that we've had experiences that prove to the world that that wood apes, Bigfoot are real. That is that is sort of the whole reason we're there, and nothing that has happened up to this point is sufficient to do that. That's I right. don't expect anyone who's listened to my voice or read any of the things we put out there to walk away going, well, there, there they go. No, Bigfoot's real. I, I, that is not our point of view on this at all. I, I know how I feel about it. I know how Daryl feels about it. And I know what we're trying to do, but those are all sort of different things. So even though we have had the rain of rocks, we've had boulders thrown at us, we've had trees pushed over on us, we've seen them dozens of times now. I, I, we found tracks we found what appears to me to be um, stations where they've been like there's rocks and underneath the rocks are broken nuts. I don't know how that happens if it's not a person or an ape. Um, we found and have experienced all these things, but no one in this group will say because of the things we've experienced, Bigfoot therefore is real and all of you should believe it. That just isn't what we do. So how do you prove it? 
you collect uh, some sort of irrefutable um, sample, uh, some sort of um, something that's verifiable. Or, yeah. yeah, and and that could be. Um, you know, I, I think we can get into the minutia of, of DNA evidence, and, and of course DNA would be great, but um, it, you need to have a, a sample size that's large enough to do multiple. Ultimately, the, in the perfect world, you'd have a type specimen. You'd have a complete articulated body. But short of that, enough of a, of a body so that multiple repeated DNA tests could be done on it so that perhaps if you have some piece of musculature or, or, or skeleton that can be analyzed and proven and shown to be not of a known animal, um, some piece like that. That's what's going to prove that the animal is real. Not, yeah, that would still, that would not still my constitute. Word. Yeah. Yeah. Any any piece of it that's big enough to identify like that is is, is a type specimen. That's right. Uh, but in in my opinion, and I believe the opinion of almost everyone in the group, certainly Daryl's opinion, um, a video isn't going to do it. A picture is not going to do it. Another audio recording or another story isn't going to do it. Another foot casting isn't going to do it. Another piece of hair isn't going to do it. Um, you're going to need a piece of meat. And a piece of meat that is identifiable and multiple and allows multiple testing by multiple parties. And there are a lot of people who, man, there are a lot of people who don't want to hear that. They become hostile when you even bring that up. They're just driven purely by emotion, yeah. uh, because that's not how science works. Science, I mean, it, you know, there was a there was a paper that came out uh, two years ago that that questioned. It was written by a group of scientists. It questioned whether or not collection of specimens was even necessary anymore. Should we pursue alternative means? And that they even asserted in the paper that because of collection of type specimens, that certain populations of animals had been had been hurt, and uh, there was a just a gaggle of of scientists that came out with a with a vociferous response to that that said, "You don't know what you're talking about. Type specimens must be collected not only for purposes of cataloging a new species, but also for purposes of conservation." for learning about that particular species, for learning about it. You can learn so much from a, from a specimen. Uh, you know, habitats, uh, all, all sorts of things. Management, uh, can, you know, can answer management questions. And uh, so, uh, it's, you know, it's very much still a 21st century phenomenon to collect type specimens. It's not something of the Victorian era. It, is, it goes on every day. Uh, it's just that so many of these people, they're just driven by emotion. You know, yeah. and, um, and I think there's a difference between collecting uh, the one millionth type specimen of a starling or a sparrow and collecting um, a specimen of a new and novel animal yeah. of, yes. of any kind, of any size, but particularly a brand new primate in North America where primates are not known to have... That walks on to, two legs. Right. I mean, it, it's a completely, you know, unusual and novel kind of animal. It, it's... It's it's a, it's an incredible statement to say that they're real. So you need mm-hmm. incredible proof when if you're trying to establish that they're real. Okay, and that's so, what Dr. Krantz said. Dr. Krantz said that very thing because this this animal is so freaky. It's so unique. It's so different. It's you're going to you cannot get anything short of a specimen to prove it exists. You know, if if, if it were if it were a, a subspecies of an existing you know a variant of an existing species of monkey or primate. It's different. Then you can get photographs, hairs. But this is this thing is so unique and so freaky, you're going to have to have a specimen. It's just the way it is. And I agree with him. 
So, so there's this uh, this show that was on Destination America. I think it was last year. I think it was called Killing Bigfoot or Shooting Hunting Bigfoot. And of mm-hmm. course, you've got the monster guys that run around the hillbilly dudes. I can't even remember the name of the show with the drunken hillbillies. So, I think typically when people say the words Bigfoot hunters. Or, obviously, we don't use the word Bigfoot, but that is typically the image that people conjure up in your mind, but I've come to find out, obviously, that that isn't how the NAWAC operates. You don't have uh, ten drunken hillbillies running around in Area X We have hillbillies, but none of them are are running around drunk. I I, I think that, (laughs) you know, there's there's nothing... There's nothing to be done about stereotypes like that, and especially in the in the media. I mean, that, they're just selling they're just selling commercial time, so they don't they don't really care about that, and 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 they're they're going to play to the lowest common denominator. I, I think that you know if you look at our guys, and I don't know anything about these guys. I don't know I don't know who they were. I don't know what they did because um, I didn't watch the show. But I mean, we've got trauma surgeons, we've got biologists, we've got law enforcement, we've got. We've got the walk of life out there, and and we've even got marketing weasels like me, and so, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what to do. Uh, I, I I feel like those those stereotypes are unfortunate, and and, and uh, but I don't really know that there's anything we can do about them, um, and uh, I think that some people are gonna, you know, they're gonna even even the fact that many of our members have southern accents, you know, that that's enough to f- to fill in the blank on a lot of people's uh, preconceptions about what the group is and what it's doing. And um, I just think that's unfortunate, and I think things like that show do nothing but but take us backwards. Well, I, I mean, that wasn't even necessarily the direction I wanted to go with that question. What I wanted to know is what are we doing in the NAWAC that is not that? We're not just – obviously, you're not just wandering around the woods with guns slung no. you know, over and, your and back. No, and again, and I think that the really critical thing that, that, that sets the NAWAC apart from everyone else is the fact that we – have a place like X and we know that they're there and for whatever reason I can't explain there is repeatable interaction that can take place with these animals most people most organizations I don't even know if there's an organization they certainly aren't talking about it if there is they don't have access to this so the 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 quote-unquote secret sauce for the NAWAC is we have a place like X and we know they're there and for whatever reason they don't leave and they keep messing with us so the that is Truly, I think the sort of the physical on the ground thing that sets us apart from from other people. Right. When we're armed and we're in there, how do we approach that? Because I mean, I mean, what I'm saying is, I don't think we're just in there shooting at anything that moves in the bush. And I think Certainly a lot of not. people. No, have as a matter of fact, no, no. And and I mean, Daryl can speak to this better than I can, but I I, I think that that we have. We actually have um, rules and and, uh, and and expectations around that, and we have had um, sort of rustly bushes and and probable um, contact with with wood apes via things like thermal imagery. Um, but until you can make that positive identification, uh, we don't take the shot. So that that's a pretty high standard, and it it doesn't leave us with a lot of shots to take. We've taken some, but we haven't taken as many as some people probably think. This idea that we're jumping around shooting at bushes is ridiculous. Right. Well, and you can't. We, we obviously we apparently we can't win that argument. That, no. That the, that the place is remote. People just for whatever reason they just don't want to buy into it. Everybody thinks they know how unremote this place is, having never been there. They all know it. And of course, we're exaggerating, and we're wrong. There aren't any people there. There just are not any people there. If they were, 
I would I would have caught them. We would have caught them. Uh, you, you, humans just can't. That terrain is just it's extremely difficult terrain. And if there's anybody in there running around without us knowing it, first of all, you hear vehicles coming. You can hear a vehicle coming from from two miles off. You hear it. Yeah. Uh, just because of the nature of the place, it's, it's situated in mountains. There's no development, none, zero development. There's no sounds of any sounds of, of urbanization. All you hear is wilderness. That's it. And if there's anything out of the ordinary, like on occasion, you know, on a morning, you might, depending on the you know the density of the air and, and certain environmental conditions, you might hear a dump truck that's three or four or five miles down the forest road. Hauling rocks, and you hear the rocks bumping, yeah. you know, jostling around in the back of the truck. Um, but there's, it's just the odds if, are just so anyone, low. Of, anyone familiar with what we do there knows that we keep field journals, and it's, it is a, it is a, a an event. It is something that is noted with interest in the field journal. If there's ever evidence of anyone else yeah, within several miles it. of us, Absolutely. occasionally, you know, a couple of times a year, you might hear some ATVs or something like that. And that's always something like, oh my gosh, you can hear, I mean, there's people. like We go investigate. You know? We yeah, go to like, make contact with them. You know, we want to see who they are. We want to know if because they're camping we're on in the area. Land. We're and on private land, so, you know, there's it, there shouldn't the, be anyone there. The, if, there's our, if there are people who are not in the organization uh, who are nearby, because there's, 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 there's cabins in the area. It, it's, it's sort of a multifamily um, uh, uh, situation there. Um, most of the time, almost all the time, nobody is in there with us. But but on the the rare occasion someone is, on those are times occasion. that we're, we're not operating. We're not we're not uh, attempting to collect a specimen in that we case. We stand those down. Those are those are you know quote unquote civilians. Those are people who are not part of this. They didn't sign up for any of this stuff. So we don't operate in those conditions. So this this idea that you know a bunch of drunken rednecks are shooting at bushes and and uh, stuff like that it, it it's it it is um as daryl says it's an argument we can't win it's it's a stereotype that exists that we cannot defeat and um it's just part part and parcel with with doing what we're doing we have a, we actually have a rule we have a rules of engagement and it's very stringent we have protocols that that dictate how how we conduct ourselves and when it comes to firearms it's very strict and uh you know, I mean, we ha we've, we've tried to determine every contingency that we could possibly determine. If there's anybody at all, just like Brian said, if there's anybody at all that's not connected to the organization and we have detected them within the area, we stand down immediately. Um, and uh, all targets are to be identified. You can't take the shot just at something that big, big brown and hairy no. that just darts between two trees and you just, you're, you think it might have been a wood ape or whatever, but you just can't, you can't. Properly, it could have been a bear or whatever. You can't take that shot. You we've we've had yeah. guys we've had guys with the reticule on hairy shapes. You know, we've had guy and and looking back on it, there is there is absolutely a, a strong probability that that what they had sighted and what they had targeted was an ape. But because they never had a clear enough visual of the animal, they did not take it. They did not right. take the shot. That I mean, we have more instances of that than we have. Or, like Daryl said, something that happened so quickly, you couldn't possibly respond to it, even if you wanted to. Um, yeah. We have more instances of that, I think, than, than, than have actually taken shots at, 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 um, at identified animals. I think we've actually taken, I think we've actually taken four shots over the four-year period. And that's, that's during 48,000 hours of time on a site. Four, so. four, four, four shots. And I took, I took one of them. 
Yep. And you know, so I mean that when you when you talk about that, it, it, you, when you put it in perspective how much time we've actually spent on site, and that we've actually only sent, we only shot four times. That's not very many times at these animals. Now I've I've shot, uh, you know, I shot at a tree stump. Because I, because I saw I saw I saw a wood ape one time and I'm very convinced that's that's what it was. It, it looked like a tree stump when I saw it. So, um, I, you know, I took a shot at a tree stump. The next time I saw a tree stump that I thought might have been an ape, it could have been an ape. I shot it, and it turned out to be a tree stump. <laughs> Bob, Bob Strain has that story, um, and anyone who listened to the old Bigfoot show has heard the story. But the where he he poked his head into a bush. Um, long story short and saw some logs laying there and then the next day we investigated this area and the logs were gone and and it's our belief that the logs were actually um uh, apes that were prone that were laying there pretending to be logs so now we have a, a slogan like first thing you do is shoot all the logs <laughs> and then, <laughs> because you never know you know and, and this is something that if you if you sort of uh, study quote unquote the literature the literature on on this animal that stopping and freezing and pretending to be a tree you know not moving is is something that has been observed um, time a and number again. yeah I've, I've investigated many reports like that and we've observed that as well so it, yeah. it's absolutely uh, behavior that, that that they exhibit also Seth we do not allow any sort of alcohol no that's it bottom line uh, now when we go to our retreat our annual retreat I mean it's kind of like the military. When I was in the military, when we were on mission, man, it was it was all mission. There was no, you know, there. You, I mean, you were game face on, and, and you were all business. When you got when you got back to base, touched down, you had your your briefing, your debriefing. After that, man, it was party time. And that's the way we are. We're out in the field. It is all mission. I mean, it's we're we're all business. When we have our annual retreat, we let our hair down, and you know, then we have a good time and just. You know, and uh, we do what we do at a, you know at a, at, a, at a great gathering, a social gathering. But when we're out there doing this, it's 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 all business, every bit of it. Okay, so we're heading into uh, the obviously the summertime. So so you're going to be getting into X. What are the challenges you typically face when you're in there for the summer, and what do you foresee as being uh, probably your biggest challenge this summer? Well, going into this year's Operation Resolute, which is what we're calling it now, which, by the way, has begun. We have a team out there now, and they've already found a 14-inch track with toes. They've already had they've already had some interactions. Um, going into this, we were concerned about the weather because that particular part of the country, Texas included, has just gotten in just an enormous amount of rainfall over the last 30 days, and we were concerned because. Uh, well, the thing is, when you go there, you expect rain. That area gets anywhere of seven, uh, north of 70 inches of rain a year. It's a very special area, and it just it gets dumped on. So, you know, we're thinking, okay, over 20 inches the last 30 days, that could present a problem. Because you have to actually physically cross flowing creeks to get to these cabins. You have to drive through the water. And so if those things are flooded, that's going to create a problem. Um, the roads can be uh, pretty mushy when it rains. There are places where you drive along the, the road or trail, whatever you want to call it. It's not really a road. And, and it's right along a ridge. that You look down out your window, and you're just kind of looking down a mountain. And so there was concern that maybe parts of that could have washed out from all the rain. Um, happy to announce that the team uh, has been in place now, and they've reported back and said that the roads are, are fine. 
that it just looks like it's rained a bunch and that they had no, really no problems getting yeah, in there. Creeks, so, creeks are high with the roads are there. And the other, the other issue that we've had in the past um, is, is trees down along the road uh, yeah. fr- from weather. It's, it's stunning, stunning to me that we didn't have to clear any trees going in this year because of the, Not a one. the, uh, the storms. And, and there's a lot of these trees are sort of precariously sitting there next to the road anyway. And apparently none of them fell over. So, um, that 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 was that was the expectation going into this year that the the first team was going to have to deal with a lot of water and and probably some down timber and and neither of those things happened. It's just a logistic. Uh, you know, you always have concerns about logistics. You know, as the coordinator of all that sort of thing, those are always uh, you know uh, in the front of our mind is you know are we going to be able to get because not everybody has a big four by four truck that they can just wheel down into the area. So you know, we always. It's always a concern of whether or not we can coordinate everybody and get everybody down there and, 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 and get everybody's equipment and gear down there and then, you know, keep the place supplied with the proper gear, batteries, everything that we need to keep an operation going for, you know, three to four months. And there's a lot of logistics involved in that. And, and so those are always the concerns, you know. And then you always have that concern about, you know, it's, it's a nightmare for us now when we think about it. but. We always have the concern: Are they going to be there? Is are they still going to be there when we get there? Is it? Yeah. Did they just up and leave? And you know, I'm now sort of of the opinion that it's the, the only thing that's going to force them out of that area is just some clear cut, some serious logging of that area. If that happens, all bets are off. Yeah. You know. The other interesting um, sort of logistical issue to deal with is the fact that you've got teams of anywhere from four to six people on site for months at a time, you, you start to have issues of, of refuse collection and, and disposal. Yeah. There's no plumbing on site. There is an right. outhouse, but that has to be dealt with. So you start to, after the first several weeks, you start to have sort of the opposite problem of having to eliminate waste and eliminate trash and, and, and that sort of thing. So, and then of course we want to, we want to be good to the environment and to yep. the land, the, the people who have let us go in there and, and stay there. So, uh, we have to maintain the property. It gets a lot of wear and tear, all those people coming through. We have to keep it cleaner than when we found it. We have to get yep. rid of all of our trash and, and other things. So Make sure it stays stocked with firewood. Yeah, because we, we, we will sometimes use the firewood depending on what the weather's doing. So it, it, it turns in that, – that's sort of a, you know unsung, so to speak, um, aspect of, of trying to put as many people as we put in place for as long as we do. All right. So is this the year? You know, every year is the year. I mean, we I go think into every year it could be, could be the year. Absolutely, yeah. we go into it thinking we all man, confidence is high. I, I got to tell you, Seth. I mean, uh, we we have. There's no reason for us not to be confident, given what we've been through. You know, what we what we now know. Uh, I mean, it could happen at any time, and I say that every time I'm on one of these shows. It literally can happen at any time. We've got people there, boots on the ground. They are eager. They are eager to get the job done. To to to, to do this to to get this thing listed, and I mean, their their frame of mind is right. They're mentally prepared. They're physically prepared. They're logistically prepared. Uh, all that has to happen now is opportunity has to meet preparation. And when that happens, the world's going to be changed. Sounds simple, it, it, but in true, if you pare everything down, that's really what it boils down to. You know, and and if anyone who hunts, and I'm not a hunter, but now I I know enough of them and appreciate enough of what what this is like, and and I don't know that I would necessarily describe what we do as hunting because we're not trying to bag a game animal, but there is an element of that in what we do. 
you know, this, this idea of, of opportunity and preparation coming together. And then there's a chance element. That's sort of the third thing. There's a roll of the dice. You know, you can put yourself in a situation so that when you see the deer walk by, but then all kinds of things can happen that can get in the way of that. And any hunter who, who has hunted knows what I'm talking about. Just because you are in a spot and there's the deer doesn't mean you get to take that one home. That's right. You could miss it. Or something else can happen, and and uh, and or a twig could get in the way, and, and you yeah. know. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I think that <laughs> what, what's interesting to me about what we've done is is that every year we we try some stuff, we learn some stuff, and we adapt. Mm-hmm. And the the tricky bit is that the 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 animal that, that we're studying that we're that we're trying to to establish here isn't like a deer or a bear or something like that it's also learning and adapting and very quickly as as we as there's we we talk about this like these new tactics that we're going to try um we only get a few shots at those you know before we realize that their behavior has changed the things that we used to take for granted that they did all the time in the first year they don't do as much because of the changes in our tactics as we go along. So you have this this animal that you're dealing with that, that as Daryl says, is probably the smartest animal in North America other than human beings. And it, it's it's not just going to keep doing the exact same thing over and over again. And you can't do it either. You know, you can't expect to do the same thing for five years, six years, seven years in a row and expect that they're going to do the same thing back to you. It just doesn't work that way. Okay. All right. So, uh, do you have one of you, either one, have a something you consider like the prototypical, the I guess the best example of uh, some sort of encounter inside Area X? What if there's one situation, one scenario that to you kind of sums everything up? No. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, but it's only because it happened to me. <laughs> I can't. Um... Oh, that's a tough question. I mean, there's a, there are a number of uh, observations, encounters that it just uh, sort of would encapsulate the entire, the whole experience. I mean, that you know that that would just be so representative of, of what we've been through. And and uh, I guess the, the 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 premier one that comes to my mind is the, is the event that involved Travis and Alton, Alton in the tent, Travis in the Overwatch, uh, with Robert Taylor, Travis taking the shot. He sees the ape in the thermal scope, takes the shot, the round hits the tree, deflects, and the thing gets away. That pretty much sums up the entire four years. Yeah. That we are right that we are right on the brink. We are on the precipice of discovery. But so far they keep eluding us by a quarter of an inch. And what's interesting to me about that particular scenario and why I think that is actually a pretty good uh, representative uh, encounter is because one of the like uh, last year I was in there with a guy who had not been there before. And we had, uh, I'm trying to condense this so that it doesn't go on for a million years, um, we had found, we discovered not too far from, from where the cabin is, we had found sort of a spot in some foliage where coming from the backside, I saw what clearly appeared to be um, a, a tunnel in the foliage where some kind of animal had gone in and out multiple times. You could see it. It was round and it was about maybe four or five feet at its highest. And so you can imagine some animal getting in there and like hunkering into this this little hidey hole. And if you were in there, because I crawled in, if you were in there, suddenly you were inside this foliage mm-hmm. and it kind of opened up inside, kind of like a little room. And mm-hmm. you could see straight out right where we sat at night. You could see the fire, you could see our trucks, you could see the front porch of the cabin, you could see everything. So to me, having been in there enough times to know that they're often very, very close. 
um, I thought, well, that there's there's apes in there. You know, this is where they hang out. One of the places that they might hang out and look at us. So that was my you know hypothesis because of experience and everything else. So I had come up with this idea that that we were going to do that night where we were going to try to sort of get around it. We were going to try to um, I, don't, I don't know the actual military term, but we were going to flank it. We were going to we were going to get up behind it. it and see if see if we could spook it up or or get some kind of activity. Not knowing, but suspecting that it would be in there. So I'm going through my plan and, and telling these guys what I want to do. And everyone in there was sort of a grizzled veteran except this one guy, who is a grizzled veteran but not of X. Um, and, and at one point he's like, why are we doing this? <laughs> what, what are we doing this for? I'm like, because there's an ape in there. I'm telling you, man, there's an <laughs> ape in that bush, right? Right now, looking at us right this second, I can tell you for a fact, which, of course, I didn't know for a fact, but I had a really strong hunch. So we did the thing. And... Um, and uh, as they were coming up the side, and he was on the group that was sort of flanking on the animal, something big, something really, really big got up and took off like a shot out of that bush. Crossed the and, trail. And crossed the trail right in front of them, but just <laughs> just before they got there. And then when they got there, they had this unbelievable sort of uh, horse urine. Yeah. If you go to the gorilla house at the zoo, that's what it was, this, this, uh, this pungent cloud. This thing had crossed milliseconds before they got in there and he came back and his eyes were wide and that was it there was an ape in that bush right and and that's the the so the the incident that 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 daryl's talking about with with travis they sat in the in in the that was that happened at very very early in the morning they'd sat in overwatch for hours nothing had happened all of a sudden i don't know 15 feet away daryl 20 feet away from where they were they were standing yeah. um an ape stands up and he sees it on thermal. He sees the outline of the animal. He sees the conical head. He sees it going down the wide shoulders. This thing is eight feet tall. It stands up 20 feet from where he is, and it's been there undetected for hours. That is X. That's what happens in X. Right there. And then he takes the shot, and it hits a tree limb and deflects the round. That's yeah. X. <laughs> so luck, lucky apes. That's far. Yeah. All right, we're going to uh, get into the lazy part of the show, which is that I threw up a um, uh, uh, post on the Sasquatch Facebook page asking for questions. We got questions, so now I don't have to come up with any more questions. I can just ask you what people are posting, and the first question comes from Derek Patterson. He asked, ask them if they were expecting better results from the DNA test they did from the creek bed. Degradation of the sample makes sense, but it's too bad they couldn't get anything from it. Yeah, we were that. So that for anybody who doesn't know, um, in in the 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 first year of of, of the operations that we've been doing, uh, what we call the echo incident, an animal was was seen by Daryl. A shot was taken by Daryl. We believe we hit the animal, and then a week later we found blood in the creek bed um, on some rocks that we believe came from the ape, but it had been exposed to the sun for an entire week. That's sort of the backstory to to that. And yeah, I would say we 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 certainly hoped. Um, it it I think what what. What bothers me more than the fact that there were no results from that sample is the the way that the sample was treated by the the lab and, and the people we've we've sent it to. I mean, it was it was it was ridiculed. It was dismissed. It was it was not taken seriously because we said what we, we said what we thought it was, and um, you can't do that, I guess. Yeah, we were pretty stunned when we got the results back. Um, he really said it wasn't even blood. I mean, he said it wasn't yeah, even blood, which is ridiculous. It absolutely, one hundred percent was blood. We used oh, we had a very common. Uh, again, we've got trauma surgeons in the group. We have law enforcement in the group. We know how to de determine if something is blood. That yeah. was blood. Absolutely beyond doubt blood. And this guy, this DNA expert said, yeah, we didn't even see any blood on that rock. Like, what are you talking about? 
Yeah, see, we, we had. I mean, we're we, not children. Yeah, right, right. We we collected five rocks. I think we collected five. We used one of the rocks to confirm this, that this, the uh, the substance was blood. Can't use that rock anymore. So then we sent another. We sent two two rocks or uh, two rocks to the lab. Yeah. The lab could not confirm that there was even blood on the two rocks we sent. We still have two rocks. We still have two rocks uh, in, in our possession, and uh, we're just waiting. We're waiting for technology, which uh, yeah. technology. I mean, one of our we, one of our members is uh, is a, is an expert in in DNA, the the technology behind DNA analysis, the the science behind DNA analysis, and uh, so you know we're not starting from zero when it comes to that sort of thing, and and we believe that at some point technology will catch up with our sample and. Um, that's what we're waiting for. It is being stored in proper conditions uh, because this person is in our group, knows how to store this sort of thing. So um, someday um, we're hoping that technology catches up with our sample, but for right now it's it's um, it's useless. I mean, I'm absolutely positive I hit it. I have no doubt. I'm just 30 feet away from me. I had, and I was using a shotgun. I'd been in a skeet shooting competition two weeks before, and I did very well in that. And, and this thing was a huge – I mean, it was not some little – you know, a little skeet, a little a big clay target. pigeon. And this was a big seven-foot-tall, big thing walking through the woods. I mean, I know I hit it, at least with the first shot. After that, I, I don't remember seeing it after the first shot. But I'm positive I hit it. Positive. Um, so. All right. Uh, anonymous question. Uh, once a specimen, a specimen is taken, has there been any thoughts on the emotional and psychological aftermath of taking a specimen on the successful collector and the group at large? Specimen collection is such a volatile subject. Can you plan for what would happen next? Well, for us, it's not a volatile subject. For us, it's straightforward. It's scientific. It's the way that it must go. It's something that must take place. Uh, speaking for me personally, if I shoot one, I'm not going to suffer any sort of emotional trauma over it. I know that something has to be done, and uh, there, you know, I, we're not going to release the name of the shooter. I can tell you that right now. That person's going to remain anonymous. Um, and um, but, uh, you know, I, I think most of us in the organization, those of us who who are or who are attempting to collect a specimen, I think that uh, we've long ago. Made that made that crossover, and uh, you know we've we've definitely made up our minds that it's the right thing to do. It's ethical. It's right. It's ethical. It's moral. It's the right thing to do for the protection of the species, for the for the discovery of the species, for the protection of its habitat. It's the right thing to do, and so there there's no emotional baggage there with that for me, and I don't think there is for most of the people in the organization. I think the critical thing that Daryl pointed out is that not everyone in the group is is there trying to to collect the specimen. Not not everyone in the group on site is um, a shooter. You know, uh, right? That's that's be, the people who have signed up for that who are uh, attempting to do that have already weighed these things in their mind. Now, of course, no one knows. No one in the group has done this before, so I'm not going to say we know for an absolute fact what's going to happen after the fact, and every every different individual is, is, is an individual and, and different, but um, the people who are trying to do it have have weighed this, have pondered it, and, and to Daryl's point, I mean, once you once you ex- accept the inevitability of what needs to happen to prove this animal being real, and once you accept the good that comes from that, then... Um, then the rest of it becomes easier. The rest of it becomes um, less of a challenge. And 
I, I don't think that anyone in the group relishes uh, the notion of, of having to, to take the life of any animal, but the, the reality is that we know it has to happen. So it has to be done. It just has to, it be, has done. to be done. Right. Um, you know, let, let me qualify what I just said. I think there could be some emotional, uh, you know, some emotion that, that stems from it, and, but, but I think it would be the emotion would stem from just, oh, oh my God, I, I've just done something that's going to change the world. I think the emotion is, is going to derive from knowing that you've just done something that is going to be enormous in the entire scheme of natural history. Now, and, now that is weighty, you know. And, and accomplish something you've attempted to do for years yeah. with, with hundreds, uh, hundreds of hours of preparation, thousands of hours of actual action, mm -hmm. and, and finally having found yourself. Despite great odds. Yeah, at the at the end, you know, successful conclusion of, of that endeavor, um, that's going to be emotional for everyone. But I don't believe that the are the kind that the person who asked the question was thinking of. All right, uh, Gene Saint Jean asked, "Do they find the enigmatic stick structures there? Those always seem like wishful nonsense to me. Also, if they hear the whistles and whoops, the Native Americans associated with the this the Sanaqua yep. creatures." I've heard whistles. I've heard I've heard whoops. Um, yeah. yeah, we've heard I've those. personally. Yeah, I've personally not seen a stick structure that I would ascribe to to uh, to a wood ape. But um, I, I, I I yeah, I've heard whistles. And in the middle, of, I mean, it's weird when you're sitting in the pitch black in the middle of the night and you hear a whistle from the woods. That is clearly a whistle, not a bird. Um, that's that's kind of a freaky experience. Yeah. Yeah, Travis and I were tracked. Uh, two years ago, that's right. Yeah, uh, during the off season, we were tracked by a whistler uh, that respond. I, I responded to its whistling, and then it would respond to mine. And this this went on for over a, a mile and a half, two mile stretch. And um, so, yeah, we definitely heard the whistle. We documented that. Uh, that's in our, our our paper that we released. We talked about that. Um, the whoops. Brian and I actually heard whoops first time together. We were. Yeah, there in 2008, yeah, Brian said, that sounds like a, and I said, whoop. He said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was just one. There was just one whoop. like, whoop. I finished the, the yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we've heard those. Um, but the stick structures, I mean, we're in the middle of the woods. And, um, you know, I mean, it's to me it's impossible, really virtually impossible to. We've never found anything that was obviously something that was put together like that. I mean, yeah, you, you see, yeah. there's there's trees everywhere, there's sticks everywhere, there's branches coming yeah. down everywhere. But we've right. never seen anything that looks like somebody with some forethought and intention built something. We've never seen that. No. I mean, I, I've seen a, I've seen what I thought was a nest when I had my first visual encounter in 2004, and the only reason I attributed it to this animal was because I just saw the animal. It just yeah. fl it fled from this. And it was. It looked like some sort of nest or something, a very primitive structure. Um, so in that case, I do think a wood ape built this, constructed this, and then it fled. And the only reason I think that is because I saw it flee that that area. So, but other than that, no, I, I don't think any of us. I don't think we have in any of our documented field reports any reports of stick structures that we attributed to wood apes. Um, TPs so, or X's yeah. and that kind of stuff. No, no. An no. X would be fitting in Area X, but I don't think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Good question. Good question. It, yeah, and it makes me think of these. Uh, here in Ohio, there's an area, a research area that I know a couple groups spend a lot of time in, and one of the big things they found there that that does seem very curious is these trees that are kind of. Uh, bent over at about fifteen to twenty feet up, and they're intertwined yeah, into almost. That's a, a little. 
that's a yeah. little different than I don't really classify it as a strict stick structure, but you know the known great apes are known to uh, manipulate vegetation for right. whatever reason. So it's not beyond the realm of belief or possibility that these things would do something similar. Now I have seen some twisted branches, yeah. some that, twisted trees. I think possibly were done by wood apes. That's the hallmark I look for because, you know, a, a, a tree can break for lots of different reasons, but we found trees um, that have been broken over and then appear to have been twisted as yeah. that's yeah. happened. So you yeah. see the the, the bark is sort up. of yeah. – right. So you get sort of a wrapping thing, which which I suppose could be could be completely, you know, innocent and natural, but, but it, it, it appears as though something twisted – um, as it as it brought that tree down, uh, so th yeah, and I agree with Daryl. I don't know that I would consider those stick structures. Um, those are just interesting tree breaks. But one has to be careful about those because black bears are known to manipulate vegetation as yeah. well. Black yeah. bears will break tree branches. They'll break small saplings. So you just need to be careful about those. Yeah. Um, we have a question from Andrew Firth. Have they ever considered letting a filmmaker into Area X to document what they're doing there? I would We've been <laughs> asked. We've been would... asked a number of times. <laughs> uh, yeah, Seth, this... we, should, we should talk off air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I almost read the rest of that, but it, it mentions this uh, movie uh, that I made, and I, I made a promise to stop mentioning the movie on my show. So, um, I would love to talk about <laughs> X... I don't know if you want to talk about this because you don't want to talk about the show, the movie anymore. But the the X parallels to to what is documented in that nameless film are very interesting to me. <laughs> it is odd the the um, stone stuff, especially the rock throwing. Well, yeah. but it's I mean if, if if you know we're talking about a species at least in my mind that exists, it, it has certain certain behavioral uh, characteristics. It makes perfect sense that what it does in Area X, it will do elsewhere, mm -hmm. yeah. and so it, you know. You, ha you just happen to have this, this house, this structure that is situated at the base of a mountain, very much like our cabin in Area X. Uh, what we've seen in Area X is they like the high ground. They like to go to uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 feet up the slope, and from that position, per, you know, uh, throw, cast rocks down onto the cabin. It, it's, it's not a new story. It's something that's been, been talked about before. You, know, you have the, the so-called event in Ape Canyon, which involves something very similar. The uh, American Indians, uh, Native Americans, they 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 reported the same thing. The whistles they, after dark, and the, the rocks would begin, you know, to come, be thrown at them. So it's not a new phenomenon. And uh, I, and the only reason I say that says because you said it's kind of odd, and I understand that uh, perspective. But I, I don't think it's odd at all. I think it's I think it's what we would expect. Where these things are, that's what they're going to do. If there's a permanent Oh, dwelling yeah. of humans. They're going to throw rocks. That's what they do because they it's either a form of play or they want you out of their territory. Repeated, We're not sure. Yeah, it's repeated yeah. behavior patterns. That's that's yes, the thing that yes. I'm looking for as a non-believer, which I've stated before, I'm a non-believer. Um, as someone, I am looking for those repeated behavior patterns because to me that is a form of evidence. That's You're a non-believer. How, how long have you been an associate member <laughs> One now, trip down. One now, trip now. down. That, that, that'll, get, that'll get that'll get wiped clean once he takes one trip in there. I'm, I'm hope. I'm, I would love to take him to area. I believe you. Um, you can call yourself whatever you want, Seth. Don't, don't, look back, don't, feel, don't feel bullied. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> he'll 
to look back and say, that was the old Seth. Uh, I, I don't know that person anymore. Yeah, well, it'll be fun for the listeners to watch the transformation. Um, <laughs> Rob Hostetter, uh, kind of on the same piggybacking on that, would you consider inviting Les Stroud to Area X to do a show? You know, here's... No, no, and so there's a difference. You know, I, I, I personally... Of course, it's not my decision at, at all because we're an organization and, and, and we do things according to a certain set of rules. But personally, the difference between having a documentarian come down to um, document what we do is very different than having Les yes. Stroud, who I have a world of Love respect Les. for as, as a person. We have absolutely zero interest to produce a TV show um, in Area X. That is clearly, clearly off the table, never going to happen. And I can say that with, with pretty... pretty uh, conclusively that that is never going to happen it's just it's not what we're doing you know i i i even though i love i love um uh, less as, as an individual i i we're not there to sell commercial time for anyone and that's mm -hmm. what tv shows are for uh, and and so no that's never going to happen even though i think less is uh, i think he's great it's never going to happen yeah i mean i think almost universally within our organization less stroud is loved Oh, he's yeah. he's like, he's the real deal. I mean, I yeah. I went through Air Force SEER training, and I know Les Stroud is the real. He's a real survivalist. There's no doubt about it. Now, if Les so we wants love to come him. down and just hang out, he's got an open invitation. There you go. Not if he's bringing his TV cameras. No. There you go. Uh, there's another layer though of approval that has to, that we have to go through, and that's the, that's, that's the right. the, uh, the landowner. And so we can't presume to just be able to invite some. You know, some celebrity down to film his TV show, which we don't want to do anyway, but we would have to get approval from the landowner, and that's not going to happen either because we know his sentiments. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's just not going to happen. We're not after that. All right. I have the most specific question I've ever seen um, from Lindsay on the site. Uh, let me get through this. In late October to November, do you notice them out between 8.30 a.m. to 10 a.m. or on north-facing hillsides during 12.30 to 2.45, if you ever notice them stocking a bedding area or feeding area for other animals, do you find they use the north-facing side of a hill to approach that bedding site if there's one there on the north-facing side of a hill? I'm, I'm not 100% sure if I read that right. but What's um, the questioner's name again? Uh, Lindsay. Lindsay, uh, we've seen them in, in in a variety of environments and settings and times, and there it's it would be impossible to nail down any specific uh, favored time period in which they in which we encounter them or, you know, any, any specific grounds yeah, that the, they the, seem to favor. Um, the level of specificity in the question is just not one that we've got data that that can yeah. that can answer. Hmm. Appreciate the question, but yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. All right, uh, Kevin Williams, uh, can you have Brian tell the story of when they were in the cabin at night and the whole cabin shook when yeah. something hit it? Well, that that was going to be my, my encapsulating all the things that happened in X because there were little bits of so many things that, that happened that night, and it's it's an incredibly long story, and I would encourage anyone who wants to hear it to listen to the episode of The Bigfoot Show. I don't remember which one it is off the top of my head. You're talking about the one that you heard that came up on the porch and shook and, and stepped yeah. up on the porch? Yeah, yeah. so the, the interesting thing about that, that night is that the, the, there was a lot of activity around us. Which And so the, a little tiny backstory to that, and I know, Seth, you don't like your shows to go long, so I'll try to keep this short. So um, we had had cameras up around the cabin. We had moved the cameras um, up on the hillside because we had uh, detected activity up there, and then the, that night when all the, cam all the cameras were gone, you know, 
take this for what you will. Um, the activity around the cabin increased quite a bit to the to the extent that that we had uh, potentially a sighting through um, through a night vision scope, not a thermal unit, but night vision. It was very very dark that night. There was no moon. Um, and then we had had uh, an animal very close to us jump out of a tree and run away on two feet. And then um, I know it was on two feet because I heard it run away. Um, and then we had had some rocks thrown at us from very close quarters in, in pretty much all directions. So we had uh, retreated into the cabin. It was like 4.30 in the morning at this point. It was very, very late at night. Um, and I was the last person to fall asleep because... Um, <laughs> because and uh as as uh i was laying there several things happened we, we had a rock what is clearly a rock it, uh hit hit the roof of, of the cabin it's a metal roof of the cabin um there's a difference between how rocks sound and nuts sound and this was a rock um sort of hit the roof and and nobody did anything nobody got up most everyone had gone to sleep except for myself and and, and uh a member plus you just hear so many rocks right you like, hear okay, like there's another that was, that was a very there was a very quiet night and this rock hits yeah. and nobody does anything and i just yeah. you know so i lay there and then um, uh, I was the only person awake at this point. Uh, nuts started to hit the back of the cabin, which is something that happened to Daryl the first time he went in there. Um, and in what I perceive, um, in retrospect, this was this was probing. This was I'm going to throw a rock at the cabin. Nothing happened. Uh, it got a little closer and started throwing nuts against the back wall of the cabin. There's an overhang there on the roof, so I don't know. And there was no wind that night. I have no idea how a nut would otherwise hit the back of the cabin if it wasn't thrown by someone or something. There's um, no way you can. But there was there were these little nuts, these little husks um, from the uh, what kind of nut tree is that over the cabin? Uh, well, there's uh, black walnut and hickory black. trees. Yeah, I think it was a hickory. The the husk. The hickory tree is right there where you're talking about. It's a right. Hickory tree. So I think it was taking the little hickory nuts or husks and, and pinging them against the back. Then I heard um, I heard something like sort of slap, like flat bare feet slapping over bare ground, like thump 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 over over over. I heard it like sort of running by the corner of the cabin. Um, <laughs> and so it and all every time I hear something, it's getting a little closer, a little closer, a little closer. This is all happening over the course of like ten or fifteen minutes. And and then I hear I hear something like this weird plinking sound, like something. And I figured out what it was after the fact, but like like something was like rapping on some sort of piece of metal. And I remember saying to myself, and this is what I say on the Bigfoot show. So if you've heard this, this is a repeat. But I remember saying to myself quite clearly, and it was pitch black. I'm telling you, I could not see the, my hand before my face. There was no light. Um, I'm saying to myself, and I'm on this bunk, a little more set up. I'm on the top bunk. There's a Boggy Creek window sort of down by my feet. Um, and and uh, I say to myself, what is it going to take for you to do something, to get up, to say something, to, you know, in some way react to the fact that something is running around outside the corner of this cabin, outside the window of this cabin. And I said to myself, I don't know, but when it happens, I'll know what it is. And as soon as I said that to myself, the moment that thought came into my head, the entire cabin shifted. The whole thing moved. And, and what, we've dis what we were able to figure out after the fact is that there was a porch off the side of the cabin there. And something stepped up on that porch. And as it did so, it was big enough and heavy enough. And, and my good friend, Mark McClurkin, who is a big boy, was not quite big enough to make the cabin move as it Mark did. Mark is 6'1 and weighs about 290, 280 right. pounds. And he maybe half as much. Um, and so this whole structure shifted. And I, it wasn't a violent action. It wasn't as Daryl was described, who had the cabin slapped or struck before. It wasn't like that. It was like something was coming up on the porch to that little window and that was just it i mean that and that was like for me that was like the 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 meter was all the way on f full done <laughs> baked um i 
got out of bed. Puck, like, that's it. The, and the, the Parker Factor meter. That's what it was. <laughs> like, you know, like a turkey, the little red, the little red button had popped out on me. I was done at that point. Like, and and you know, the funny thing is, you go into X and like you want you want ape action, you want to experience things. But at that night, I was like, enough. Will you just get away from me so I can get two hours of sleep? You stupid monkeys. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know they're not be, monkeys. Be, be careful what you wish for. You know, people, you know, begging to go into X. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's so. that story. Great story. It's one of my favorites. It is. Actually. It is a great story. And Seth, it really, truly happened. Yeah. No, I, I, I believe it. I promise you. <laughs> it's funny. I don't remember if I've said this on your show or, or where I've said this. I, I, I remember saying it recently. Somebody made a comment on the Facebook page of the Bigfoot show after I said that. And they said that when they heard me tell that story, that's when they, they listened, they heard me become a quote unquote believer, right? They could hear it in my voice. And, and it, it was that whole week was just so that was, yeah. that was incredible. That's a turning point, literally a turning point in my life. I could that, hear Brian's voice week. every day when he would call oh, to report man. in. Every day, his voice became a little more agitated. Well, and, it, every, and the, the, every day. the culminated in the event with Mark in the creek and the shot mm-hmm. fired and the thing charging him and him making the weird clucking noise that apparently you can't say to a male wood ape if he's got girls around. And <laughs> it was it was just a super stressful and, and uh, incredible um, experience. And, and yeah. you know, truthfully, it left me, I'm not going to say that I know what PTSD is, but I can tell you that for weeks after laying in no, my that was bed, PTSD. in my bed, in, in my house, in suburban Minneapolis, I would hear a sound outside and immediately be awake and immediately have my brain ticking and thinking what made that sound. And I had to tell myself, like, knock it off. You're at home. There's nothing out there. It's probably a cat, right? But the the, the there was there was absolutely uh, sort of an after effect to, to having that experience. That whole week, culmination of that whole week was, was uh, impactful. Yeah, I mean, it was a very low level of PTSD. There's no doubt about it. You endured something very traumatic, stressful. I'll tell you, it's gone you did, now. Yeah, it's, you had it's to deal with it for a week. The, the, the shit I do now is compared to then. I mean, it, it, and it isn't, um, I don't remember if we talked about this on your show or not, but it, this whole fearlessness factor or the, you know, the, the, the role of fear and all this, it's, it's um, yeah, it, it, I think it, 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 it helped because now I do crazy stuff, that the kind of stuff that Daryl does on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's got to happen. Uh, is that a typical response of like newbies that come into Area X like that? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty okay. much. Absolutely. Uh, you know, if you have an eventful week well, like think that, about absolutely. It. Think about it. I mean, you're, you, you know, t- just take you for instance. You're a non-believer. You go in there. You're there for two days, and there are rocks being thrown at the top of the cabin, hitting the cabin. You see these rocks, and you've already made the evaluation in your mind that there's no way people can be doing it because you've walked up that mountain and it's been right. it's been extremely taxing on you. Right. So you've already made this sort of logical determination. Okay, this can't be people. So there's something up here on this mountain throwing rocks at us. Okay. So that's that's troubling. That that's that rocks your world a little bit because you've already you're already a person who doesn't think these things exist. So so then you turn in at night to go to bed, and and then the, the side of the cabin gets hit. Boom! In the middle of the night, and and it gets pummeled with rocks throughout the night. You get up the next day, you and two of your buddies are hiking up the mountain, and you see this big brown thing that's six or seven feet tall run from tree to tree, and now you you you're freaked out. Your whole world right. has been rocked. They exist now. Something and that's, that was. It, 
And the crazy thing is, I mean, what everything Daryl is saying is absolutely true. But I went in there that week, and I had already, I was, I was way north of ninety percent uh, suspecting that these things were real. And 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 every day something happened in that in that week. That's it just still a wide me. gap, though, man. That, it from is, 90, and, and from ninety-five you know, to one hundred percent is still a wide gap. Yeah, and the rock thing that Daryl's talking about—you are you are sitting there, and and it it isn't like something that hits you in the face. It's something that you're sitting there like pondering, like, hmm. There's rocks flying out of the trees right now. <laughs> there are rocks flying at me. I can see. There's a rock. I just saw that rock fly out of the bushes. I, it's, something just was up in that tree and jumped down. I mean, again, there's there, the, a good example of that night that, that the thing came up on the porch, and I said that with my night vision, I thought I saw an outline of an animal at the end of this clearing, and I didn't do anything about it. I didn't I didn't go down there. This past, um, the last time I was in there with Daryl, I saw an animal peeking from behind a tree. I saw it, like, put its head back behind a tree, and the first thing I wanted to do was go over there. And, and so it, it, the, the reaction is completely the opposite. You know, then I was like, hmm. That looks like a really big animal. Now I'm like, oh, there you are. You know, and I'm like, kind of, and so you, you start, you find yourself like running towards them. And yeah. I, I don't know when that happened because mm-hmm. at one point I was going back to the campfire for security and now I'm running at them. I don't know when that happened, but it did. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, like, I want to wrap up on this question. So, um, when I was making the film that I just made, um, I did gain this weird attachment to the property uh, where we did a lot of our filming and where, where the original incidents happened back in 78 and all that stuff. Um, and that was just from being out there a few, you know, a handful of times where I, I was aware of this history of activity and everything seemed very mysterious to me, but I loved going back there and I still do. And if I can, you know, I'm always watching the woods and if I go up in the woods, I'm, I'm watching the hills. Um to 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 both of you, uh, each of you can answer this question. What is Area X to you when you go back there? What you know? What is the attachment you have to it? What do you feel when you're there? What do you feel when you're not there? You know, when I get up in the morning, I, the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I go and I get a glass of water, um, and I, you know, I hydrate, and then I come here into my study, and then my study is my abode, and I turn on uh, some music. Um, it's uh, it's um, classical music. And then I find pictures of the Washita Mountains, and I put them up on my computer, and I meditate. So that's what that place means to me. It means it, it's a magical place to me. It's uh, and it's really difficult to put into words, but it's just a it's a place I go to in my mind all the time because it's 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 really hard to explain. But I'm in my element there. I mean, it's just it's. The, you know, I mean, if I had my if I had my choice, man, I wouldn't I wouldn't mind being buried on that mountain. Hmm. I mean, it's just an incredible place, and uh, you know, experienced, observed so many things that so many people just think is comic book stuff, you know. But it's real; it happened to me, and um, so it's definitely it's the closest I can get to heaven on this planet. Seriously, I mean, it's undeveloped, it's beautiful, it's rugged, it's remote, it's it's wild. You know, all the things that I love, and it still exists, you know, even in 21st century America. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a hard place, it, it, but it's a place you can go and have things happen to you that you're told by most people are impossible. And, you know, I... I my my thinking about it is a little differently, a little different than Daryl's. I don't think about it when I get up, but I often think about it as I'm falling asleep. And I'm I'm... I'm often putting myself back in that place 
and and it, it isn't you know sometimes i like i i think of nature as sort of a calming um uh, place to go uh, a place to sort of reconnect with with what it is to be a you know a creature on this planet um and and that to me isn't necessarily x but it certainly happens there i don't think of x as a calming place i don't i don't i don't i don't feel calm there but i feel a lot <laughs> i feel alive when i'm there yeah absolutely and, and uh, as i said if if you're fortunate enough to be there at the right time something impossible will happen and it's it's hard to um it's hard to get that out of your head it's hard yeah. to it's hard to to not think about that on a regular basis absolutely you know and seth it's just like you know we're just bursting with this stuff man it just it's so um, it's 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 so difficult because you just want to share it with everybody. You want to tell everybody what's happened to you. You want to share it with the world, but the world right. just doesn't. They don't care. They, they think which it's we which we do, and and then you know you've got individuals mostly on the internet who talk about how I mean we're somehow saying these things and and putting out podcasts and writing, you know, research papers for the attention. Like, no, I just want everyone to know. I just want everyone to know. Man, I want everyone to know what happens there. That's yeah. it's incredible stuff. And and it, it, what I have zero profit. I have not profited personally in any oh, way from, we've from all doing this. No one has of dollars. <laughs> tens of thousands each of us. I don't, I don't, I don't know what it would be like to be the kind of person to have the experiences we've had there, and then to just like go home and and wa turn on the TV and and watch the news and not tell anyone that. It just it blows me away. I don't know how you could do that. So I, I, I'm totally with Daryl on that one. I just we get out and it's like you just want people to know, like this place exists, this stuff happens. You know what? Wherever you live, wherever you are, if you're close to the wilderness, chances are there's one of these places near you too. Go find it, because they're out there. I do not believe for a second that X is the only place like X in North America. I don't believe it at all. Join the conversation at facebook.com slash sasswhat. Find us on Twitter by using the hashtag sasswhat, or you can find me on Twitter at SethBreedsLove. Mark Matsky is on Twitter at Reverend Matsky. Send your letters to sasswhatmail at gmail.com and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Mm -hmm.